Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. We use console questions to dive into ID, clinical reasoning, diagnostics, and antimicrobial management. I'm Sarah Dong, your host. I am excited to introduce our guest today. First up is our co-host, Dr. Reynaldo Array Perez. He is a third-year ID fellow at Duke University Medical Center. He works with the Duke Center for Antimicrobial Stewardship and Infection Prevention to further their mission of improving patient safety and enhancing quality of care. His research interests include implementation of antimicrobial stewardship interventions and leveraging interprofessional teams. He also has additional interests as a medical educator with a passion for curriculum development and effective assessment of educational interventions. Hey, Sarah, thanks so much for having me. This is so exciting to be here. Next, meet Dr. Andrew Watkins. He is an infectious diseases pharmacist at St. Dominic Jackson Memorial Hospital in Jackson, Mississippi, and serves as the pharmacy stewardship lead for the hospital, as well as the Franciscan missionaries of Our Lady Health System. His responsibilities include perspective, audit, and feedback, policy and protocol development, implementation of stewardship initiatives, antimicrobial use tracking and reporting, and education of frontline staff on ID and antimicrobial stewardship-related topics. He also precepts pharmacy residents on antimicrobial stewardship learning experiences. Hey, Sarah, this is Andrew Watkins. Uh, Thanks for having me. And last but not least is an old friend of the show, Dr. Jonathan Ryder. He is an assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases at University of Nebraska Medical Center. He serves as an Associate Medical Director of Antimicrobial Stewardship with interest in diagnostic stewardship and stewardship in rural settings. He is also an Associate Hospital Epidemiologist with the Infection Control and Epidemiology Program. Lastly, he has interest in digital medical education and is co-director of the Microbiology Block for the first-year medical students. Hi, this is Jonathan Ryder. I'm really excited to be back on Febrile. Okay, you guys know the drill. Before we talk about the case and the episode today, we always ask about sharing a piece of culture because Febrile is everyone's favorite cultured podcast. So I would love to hear about something that you have had fun with recently or that has brought you joy. Yeah, so today's episode is nearing Thanksgiving, and so I thought I'd come up with a piece of culture related to that, mainly pointing out that I think Thanksgiving is my personal favorite of the holidays, uh, with its triple threat of uh, family, food, and football. And uh, since my football team isn't playing this year uh, on Thursday, I am going to choose my favorite Thanksgiving dish as my culture recommendation. And uh, my favorite is uh, my mom's sweet potato casserole. Uh, It has pecans on top and not a fan of the marshmallows that some people do uh, for that dish. So that's going to be my pick. (laughs) Well, I feel like I have to ask, do you just not like marshmallows? Are you morally opposed to having them on top of sweet potatoes? You know, I grew up having marshmallows on my like sweet potato yam casserole. So I actually didn't realize until recently that that was something that some people thought was a a bit weird. I love marshmallows, but not in that dish. Um, And I think that's not how that dish was made for me growing up. And so that concept just doesn't work for me. But uh, over an open campfire, big marshmallow fan. Got it. So uh, how about you, Ray? 
So sticking with the holiday theme as well, with uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas around the corner, my family comes from Puerto Rico, and we have a very special tradition there. It's a unique version of Christmas caroling called parandas, where you go around the neighborhood creating a bigger and bigger band, essentially, to sing Christmas carols, and then everyone who you sing at their house has to feed you. So it's just a really special and really uh, fun and crazy tradition. Amazing. Uh, Andrew, you want to finish us up? Yeah, I'm going to stick with the holidays too, and I'm going to kind of look ahead, no no offense to Thanksgiving, because I do enjoy that, but really looking forward to Christmas. Um, it's a really fun time of year, you know, it's almost time to start decorating. I'm very much a Black Friday Christmas decoration person, um, so I do give Thanksgiving its due, but then we jump into the decorations, um, you know, getting the kids to really get involved in that and enjoy that and then seeing family. It's a really busy time of year, but one I really enjoy. So this week is U.S. Antibiotic Awareness Week. This annual campaign from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention seeks to highlight the steps everyone can take to improve antibiotic prescribing and use, as well as being a rallying cry in the fight against increasing antimicrobial resistance. In honor of this, today's case will be focused on hospital antibiotic stewardship programs. Uh, And this episode is brought to you in collaboration with the Society of Hospital Epidemiology's Antimicrobial Stewardship Committee, for which Dr. Ryder is a member. So this week, you're on call for the hospital's antimicrobial stewardship pager. And today's consult question comes after you receive a call from the cardiac surgery team requesting approval for daptomycin after a preoperative urine culture grew vancomycin-resistant enterococcus fecium in a penicillin-allergic patient. So, Jonathan, before we really get started, not everyone here may be familiar with the structure of antimicrobial stewardship teams or some of the techniques that we commonly use when we're serving this role. So before we get into the details of this case, I think it'd be great if we discuss some of the essential components of a stewardship team and think about two of the core interventions that we utilize, antibiotic restriction and post-prescription review. So just to start, Jonathan, why do we need stewardship teams? Thanks, Ray. Such a such a great question. I'm glad we're starting with the basics after uh, hearing that console question. So there's kind of a, kind of a lot going on there. So there, there's several reasons why we need stewardship teams. So antimicrobial resistance is a, is a growing problem of international scale. And a 2014 report estimated that if antimicrobial resistance continues on its current trajectory, that by 2050, about 10 million people would die each year as a result of antimicrobial resistance with a global cost up to 100 trillion U.S. dollars. And so while uh, antimicrobial resistance is, is a growing issue, we also have a pretty big issue with appropriate antibiotic prescribing. And so when you look at common reasons for antimicrobial uh, uh, prescriptions, the, the data show that it, it was inappropriate in about 80% of patients that have community-acquired pneumonia, about three-quarters that have urinary tract infections, half of patients who are prescribed fluoroquinolones, and about a quarter of patients who are receiving intravenous vancomycin uh, antibiotics. And, and the reasons why we see inappropriate antibiotics are usually due to inappropriately uh, long therapy in patients with uh, community-acquired pneumonia. And in urinary tract infection, about half of patients um, don't have any signs or symptoms of infection. And so ultimately, antimicrobial stewardship programs are in place because as infectious disease doctors, we can't uh, be consultants on every single patient on antibiotics. And so we need to have larger systems-based interventions that improve our utilization of antimicrobials. 
And, and similarly, you have to track what you do uh, in order to make changes and to make improvements. And having a dedicated stewardship team and program really helps with tracking and reporting and, and building accountability to help drive these improvements. And ultimately, antimicrobial stewardship teams are about improving patient care. And I always want to emphasize this point because sometimes people really see these as more uh, health system or more societally driven uh, programs. And while those things are certainly true that there are downstream benefits uh, to society and a health system, ultimately what we do on the day-to-day -day is about optimizing patient care, that we're making sure that each patient receives the right drug for the right bug at the right dose for the right duration at the right time. And so I always think that uh, stewardship programs really at the core of them are taking care of our patients. Thanks for that, Jonathan. I think you really helped put into context what the nature of the problem is here. And uh, Andrew, just to pull you in, you know, when you think about what really makes a great stewardship team, what are those core features that make it work? You know, what do you think about? Yeah. So luckily CDC has done a lot of the homework for me and has a really great list of those CDC core elements. So what are at their basic, the most essential parts of a stewardship program? And they have seven that are very clearly defined. They have hospital leadership commitment. They have accountability. They have pharmacy expertise, action, tracking, reporting and education. So I just want to kind of run through those and give a very high level view of what is involved with each of those. And so looking at hospital leadership commitment, CMS is very clear that institutional leadership along with quality improvement must address issues that are identified by the infection prevention and the stewardship committees. Uh, and this open communication between stewardship and hospital leaderships really helps facilitate this. Um, and this is really important because a lot of the bigger stewardship initiatives can really flounder if you don't have that administrative support and kind of like leadership weight behind them. Hospitals can demonstrate this leadership through funding positions, and so actually having dedicated funding for salary for these positions, having dedicated FTEs for these positions. Um, and another way that you can show leadership support is just by having some public statements of support that leadership can sign. You can display these across your institution um, or publish them on websites um, just to show that that leadership is committed to supporting antimicrobial stewardship. Talking about the accountability piece uh, is more centered around having a clear leadership structure within the stewardship program. So typically that's going to take the form of a physician leader uh, and a pharmacist as co-leaders, um, but you can have stewardship programs that have just a single leader. These roles should ideally be clarified so it's always clear who's running the stewardship program and who's accountable for the metrics and outcomes with the stewardship program. One often overlooked point, things that we've seen are not thought about in a lot of surveys um, is that these leaders should have some sort of education or training or experience in infectious diseases or antimicrobial stewardship um, as outlined by Joint Commission and CMS. And so this can be your kind of classic postgraduate training with an ID fellowship or ID pharmacy residency, um, or can be through certificate courses plus ongoing continuing education kind of year to year. Looking at pharmacy expertise really focuses more on the pharmacy co-leader of the stewardship program and really is another essential element of that. You know, I'm biased as a pharmacist, but I will say that because of the positioning of pharmacists within the healthcare system, kind of our roles, we can be really helpful in stewardship programs because we interface with so many different aspects of the healthcare team. We also are situated really well to have access to antibiotic use to help kind of track that over time and help with that reporting piece. Um, already integrated into the pharmacy and therapeutics committee, which really helps uh, with integration with that for leadership and quality. 
And they're also just very familiar with drug-specific information like pharmacokinetics and dynamics and all those fun things that go into how we optimize dosing of antibiotics. So all in all, really helpful to have a pharmacist co-leader um, in stewardship. The action core element um, has interventions such as prospective audit and feedback or pre-authorization, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, also, facility-specific treatment guidelines. They're also a very key action element uh, and will be required by Joint Commission uh, as of this year having at least two of those implemented. So really important from a, a regulatory standpoint as well. Um, and overall action is probably the broadest and most vague of all of the core elements because there are so many things that you can do. You could have automatic protocols uh, for renal dosing or IV to PO conversions, kinetics-based dosing, antibiotic timeout processes or handshake round, automatic stop dates. So this is where you can really fit in a lot of the, the interventions in the day-to-day, -day, like big projects in the stewardship programs. Tracking is vital because of its utility in helping to find opportunities for improvement, for tracking progress of any interventions you've implemented, and helping to build accountability. There are tons of different metrics. We could probably have a whole hour talk on just what metrics you could track. But really, one of the most basic is antibiotic use. Uh, and so actually tracking and reporting antibiotic use to NHSN, which is the National Healthcare Safety Network, is a regulatory requirement starting in 2024. Uh, and it serves as a great method of not only tracking your use, but help establish some benchmarking and comparisons to similar hospitals. Um, it's especially helpful to track in relation to any particular initiatives you have going on. So maybe you have, you know, new guidance to help decrease use of broad spectrum hospital agents. And then you can actually track this over time. And CDC has a ton of great examples on their website of some of these ways to actually track this data. But then you can also encompass other aspects of tracking. So, you know, number or type of audit and feedback patient interventions. And so that's really helpful because it can highlight the impact of your stewardship group. You know, how many interventions are you having? What's your acceptance rate? Um, and then also helping to justify some of those continued funding and additional uh, positions. You can also track other outcomes like C. diff or MDRO infections. And so the list is really long on tracking, but what's really important is that after you track, you actually go to the next core element, which is reporting. So really reporting is your kind of actionable back inside of tracking where you take the data that you've actually uh, tracked and you've deemed most important, and then you relay that back to your frontline staff. And so that's important because it's going to increase transparency and buy-in for those providers, especially when you pair that with the reporting and education and ongoing interventions. It also makes the data more actionable and helps with modifying an issue that may not be doing so well from the beginning. You look and say, you know, hey, we implemented this a month ago and we're not seeing really any movement in our use. What can we do better? Can we educate better? Can we communicate this? Um, or maybe you highlight some early successes that you can take back immediately and say, look, we started this last month and we're having we're seeing a huge impact. Like, keep good job, keep going. And really helps with that kind of morale and buy-in. Overall, the combination of tracking and reporting really helped drive the program forward uh, and work as a great accountability piece. And then lastly, education. It's really kind of one of the more nebulous topics of core elements because it can take so many different forms, have so many different audiences. Education can involve prescribers or pharmacists, nurses. You could educate patients and family, and then you could cover a whole host of topics from resistance, you know, the harms of antibiotics, optimal prescribing. Uh, it can really take the form of institutional guidelines or antibiograms, uh, hospital policies, in-service presentation, handouts. I mean, you name it and you can educate on it, essentially. And so because of that, usually I recommend keeping a log of education, um, things that you've done, you know, who you educated, when you educated, and then what did you actually educate about? Um, so that if you're ever asked by a surveyor, you know, 
prove to me what education you've done. You can have a list there. They'll say, oh, yeah, we went to this session back in July. Um, and then also just to make your lives easier because you know, there's so much going on uh, in the day-to-days of a stewardship program, try to pair your education with whatever initiative you're really trying to push forward. So, you know, you're, you're implementing this new initiative that's part of the action core element. Uh, and then you, you're educating providers on that as well. You're reporting back. And so you really hit a lot of these core elements all at one time with one initiative. Well, thanks so much, Andrew, for that really comprehensive overview. I feel like I can just see the stewardship team in action already with everything that you've described there. Now, uh, if, Jonathan, to pop back to you, I did want to expand a little bit on one thing that Andrew was talking about, and that's because the CDC highlights as a priority intervention two of the things that stewardship programs do that have the most evidence for e- efficacy, and that's prospective audit and feedback and preauthorization. Can you tell us a little bit more about what these tools are and how they work? Thanks, Ray. Yeah, so there's these sort of two um, philosophies and approaches to antimicrobial stewardship and how it takes place uh, in action. And so prospective audit and feedback is really kind of reviewing from an external standpoint how antibiotics are being used. And then uh, after reviewing cases, identifying opportunities to improve that use, audit and feedback occurs after an antibiotic is prescribed. And this can take place in many different formats, either by messaging or calling a team or actually in a face-to-face format, which is known as handshake stewardship in which uh, the recommendations actually occur in person. And so in contrast to prospective audit and feedback is pre-authorization, also known sometimes by restriction. And this is really requiring some sort of approval uh, by the antimicrobial stewardship team in order to use a certain antibiotic. And this really allows for the antimicrobial stewardship team to give their input whenever a prescriber is interested in using that antibiotic and really prevent unnecessary initiation of antibiotics as well. And so these two different forms have actually been compared uh, directly, and generally prospective audit and feedback has been shown to be more effective. However, there's really a use for both of these in stewardship programs, depending on some of the uh, different situations that pop up. Could you expand on that a little bit more? Like, what do you see as some of these pros and cons between these two different approaches? And how have you synthesized that and applied it at your own institution, for example? Yeah, so prospective audit and feedback's uh, really strong points are that you are providing uh, direct education to the prescriber when you're providing that feedback. It also allows for a lot of autonomy for prescribers, and it really empowers those um, team members to make their own initial decisions about what antibiotics to use. Uh, It really creates kind of a collegial environment because decisions are made in in a collective uh, manner. Uh, one pro when you're running a program is that prospective audit and feedback is is primarily during uh, daytime hours, actually almost exclusively. Uh, so not a lot of phone calls in the middle of the night. The other part of this is since you're providing education, you may actually have kind of downstream impacts on multiple uh, components of antibiotic use throughout your hospital system. And then you're also able to comment to that individual about both the antibiotic that's being used, but also dosing, duration, de-escalation. And so there's multiple components that can be affected. 
the problems with prospective audit and feedback is it can be kind of resource intensive to actually go through a, a list, for example, every day, uh, spend time in those patient charts, reviewing the indications, the dosing, the durations, et cetera, for each of those individual patients. Another disadvantage is that the patient already receives usually at least one dose of antibiotics, if not several doses or even several days of antibiotics before an intervention occurs. And so some of that upfront antibiotic use uh, when deemed inappropriate already has occurred. And then ultimately, the prescribers can do what they want. That autonomy does allow uh, for the prescribers to disagree with the stewardship team. And that may mean that um, the recommendations do not have a great uptake. So to, to contrast that with pre-authorization, its big advantage is it really allows more control by the stewardship team over antibiotic prescribing, especially in that upfront empiric and initial antibiotic uh, choice or, or choice to not initiate therapy. And I think this is especially effective and useful when you're talking about really expensive antibiotics, newer antibiotics that people may be less familiar with, or antimicrobials that may be more toxic, or for example, antifungal agents or certain antiviral agents. Another situation can be whenever um, you're facing shortages and there's just a very limited supply that a few wasted doses goes a long way. So the cons of pre-authorization are that there's a lot less prescriber autonomy. There's usually some sort of phone call that has to take place, usually asking for some sort of permission for antibiotics, which can be a, a fairly adversarial interaction at some points in time. And this oftentimes will also involve some sort of overnight call. And this intervention is really limited only to the antibiotics that are on the restricted list. So it doesn't help with antibiotic durations or dosing or non-restricted antibiotics. And of course, the, the last concern I'll bring up is that this pre-authorization process could result in delays of therapy to patients who are especially critically ill, which uh, could be a, a downstream consequence. So my experience at my institution is that we largely use prospective audit and feedback for our daily stewardship activities, which does take a, a really dedicated stewardship team that's dedicating time to this. But we review lists of key antibiotics and diagnostic tests. So, for example, all positive blood cultures and rapid molecular uh, diagnostic testing results and antibiotics that are higher risk for uh uh, clustered uoides difficile, such as uh, fluoroquinolones and clindamycin. And then we look at broad spectrum agents like vancomycin, piperacillin, tamcefepime, etc. And, and we provide that uh, feedback to clinicians based on um, the antibiotics that they've prescribed. But we also use pre-authorization and restrictions on certain antibiotics, such as those that I mentioned that have higher adverse uh, event profiles or that are more expensive. And these are also reviewed as part of the uh, prospective audit and feedback process, where oftentimes clinicians may be able to access a dose overnight, but then the next day uh, feedback is given to adjust that. Awesome. Well, now that our toolkits are filled with all of these new useful ideas to tackle this case, why don't we go ahead and dive right in? So our patient is a 67-year-old male with a past medical history of hypertension, type 2 diabetes, obesity, and coronary artery disease. Over the last two months, he developed symptoms of stable angina, and outpatient coronary angiography demonstrated three-vessel disease. He was seen by cardiothoracic surgery as an outpatient, and he has planned for coronary artery bypass grafting tomorrow. The cardiothoracic surgery team 
has the practice of collecting a urine culture on all patients as part of their routine preoperative labs. He has not reported any fever, dysuria, urinary frequency, urgency, or other urinary symptoms of note. His allergy history is significant for a listed penicillin allergy. Patient's mother reportedly told him in childhood, around seven, he developed a rash after being given penicillin for a sore throat. He does not believe that it required treatment at that time. He has avoided repeat exposure since then. His labs are fairly unremarkable. His CBC had a white blood cell count of 7.6 with a normal differential, a hemoglobin of 12.7, and platelets of 256. His complete metabolic panel showed normal electrolytes and normal liver transaminases, a serum glucose of 183, and a serum creatinine of 1.2, which was his baseline. His urinalysis had an unremarkable dipstick, and on microscopic analysis showed five white blood cells per high-powered field, one red blood cell per high-powered field, and 10 squamous epithelial cells per high-powered field without any casts visualized. His urine culture grew Enterococcus fecium that was susceptible to ampicillin and resistant to vancomycin. As mentioned earlier, you are on the antimicrobial stewardship pager, and you get a call for linazolid, a drug that requires preauthorization at your institution. So Jonathan, to go back to you, you know, as you think about this case, I know that for me, being in the pre-authorization role as a fellow was sometimes awkward. Uh, unlike a consult where you're being asked for help by the team, you're kind of inserting yourself and sometimes perceived as the antibiotic police. So how do you frame your role or what other techniques do you use when having to give this unsolicited advice? Yeah, this is this is um, a great a great scenario here. And so... Um, you know, usually I, I start with introducing myself, say, you know, hi, I'm Jonathan. I'm with the antimicrobial stewardship team. And then I use an approach that I learned actually during the IDSA's antimicrobial stewardship training course, which uh, I'm going to highly recommend and, and provide a little bit of a plug for. But this is uh, known as the Narrows uh, mnemonic. And I print this off and I hang it on my wall and Anytime I'm uh, facing a case or working with a trainee in stewardship, I always kind of review this and take a deep breath and really make sure I'm in the right place to kind of have this um, a conversation because sometimes there is a little bit of negotiation that happens through this process. So just going to go through this mnemonic briefly and use this case as an example. But the first part of uh, narrows is in, and that's to name the issue. And so you know, this is the patient, whoever that we're talking about, and um, you're, you're calling asking about linazolid for uh, treating a urinary tract infection is basically what you're calling me. And so I, I then go to A, which is to ask, what, what is the reason? Why, why do you want to use linazolid? What about this patient's uh, urinalysis and urine culture make you concerned? Um, and then R is to reflect their emotion. And so I always try to empathize with the team and say, yeah, this patient's really sick or in this situation, yeah, this patient's going for a big surgery tomorrow. I understand that we want to make sure this patient is optimized for this uh, surgical intervention and that they don't develop any sort of post-operative complications uh, as a result. So the next R in narrows is to relate with personal experience. And so saying something like, yeah, I remember um, whenever I uh, worked in the ICU and I was worried about a patient. Um, uh, something to really kind of 
show that you care about that individual patient. You know, whatever your personal story or or memory is that's relevant for that particular situation. The O in narrows is to orient to the suggested management. So um, I would say something like in this case that you could use linazolid. It's a, it's, it actually is a really good option for treating someone with a true uh, VRE uh, urinary tract infection. However, in this situation, it, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of inflammation uh, on the urine culture, and, and the patient doesn't sound like they have any symptoms. And so this seems more like asymptomatic bacteria. And so W then is working together on a plan. And so I then make a suggestion like, you know, do you feel comfortable like uh, discontinuing antibiotic therapy in this case and, and monitoring for uh, the development of further urinary symptoms? And this is where sometimes there's a little negotiation that takes place. Maybe they're concerned for another reason. Maybe maybe they tell me that they actually do have urinary symptoms and that um, they're actually symptomatic and that maybe what I understand from what they first told me or what I read in the chart actually isn't the case. And then S is to set follow-up. And so um, it, it can always be reassuring to say, hey, call me back if, if the patient develops symptoms or I'll keep an eye on the chart and wait on the susceptibilities or the, the next set of labs or whatever the next marker is to really figure out, you know, how can I help this patient? Thanks, Jonathan, for that really wonderful framework. I think I'm going to have to print it and hang it on my wall too. Now, you know, as we think about this case, it has a ton of different potential intervention points. We could be talking with the team about diagnostic stewardship and reducing unnecessary urine cultures. We could go into a conversation about asymptomatic bacteria, like you kind of alluded to earlier. We could dive into this penicillin allergy that may or may not be real and talk about opportunities for delabeling penicillin allergies. Andrew, to jump to you this time, how do you decide on the priority of these interventions when you have lots of things on the menu in front of you? How do you decide what to focus on? Yeah, it's a great question. And this is a really great case that highlights that. But in my view, the prioritization really depends on what you think is going to have the largest impact. So what's going to touch the most patients, uh, but also be the most manageable and realistic from an implementation standpoint. And so it really, what's going to give you the best bang for your buck from a stewardship intervention standpoint? And so in this case, you know, if you're looking big picture, I think asymptomatic bacteria really stands out as the greatest opportunity for a targeted initiative because of how often it's treated unnecessarily and how widespread the issue is. I mean, I know where I practice and where I've practiced in the past, you see antibiotics started for asymptomatic bacteria numerous times every day. It's clearly a driver of antibiotic use. And so it's also a great example because it can be tackled from numerous angles. So a lot of the things that you mentioned are kind of pieces that we can target for asymptomatic bacteria. So, you know, first and most importantly, you can roll out education and some targeted messaging to really highlight the lack of benefit and, frankly, risk of harm of giving unnecessary antibiotics uh, when you're talking about treating asymptomatic bacteria. Uh, this education and the targeted messaging pairs really nicely with reinforcing these concepts through some patient review, audit, and feedback practices, reaching out to providers. So you're providing overarching education, and then you're also reaching out on a patient-by-patient patient case to kind of discuss this with providers. Uh, it's also a really great chance to include some of this information in local treatment guidance. Um, so again, circling back, that helps with your action core element and with some of those regulatory requirements we mentioned. And then aside from education about just appropriate non-treatment of asymptomatic bacteria, there's also really a great opportunity for some diagnostic stewardship. 
So there's a growing amount of literature highlighting some great strategies to really help leverage the electronic health record to help with appropriate urine culturing uh, through different algorithms, alerts, order questions to be sure that you know, we're steering providers to only order urine cultures when it's appropriate, because if you never have the urine culture that grew something, you can never really have that prompt of, oh, I really need to treat that. And you can prevent the whole cascade from occurring by just not sending the inappropriate uh, test. Studies have shown that a lot of these practices can have positive impacts on antibiotic use, as well as lab and nursing workflow due to decreasing the amount of inappropriate cultures actually being ordered. And I'd say that this also ties into the case really well because of the patient's routine preoperative, uh, quote-unquote, urine culture that kicked off the whole decision tree uh, in, in this case. So I know surgical teams can often get really nervous about asymptomatic bacteria uh, in particular, especially when you're talking about hardware being implanted. And I actually just had an example of this happen in a patient a few weeks ago that I saw. So this, this case really hit home there. Um, you know, obviously, we empathize with providers who see a positive urine culture. You know, they want to do what's best for the patient. They want to treat that um, because especially when they're going to be placing hardware, they don't want to put patients at increased risk of post-op infections. Um, but there was a really large study done a few years ago in JAMA surgery that actually found that in patients who were undergoing cardiac, orthopedic, or vascular surgery, giving antibiotics that were active against the urinary bacteria uh, in those patients with asymptomatic bacteria had no effect on the incidence of surgical site infection. And then a step further, the study actually found that when surgical site infections did occur, the causative organisms were actually different than what grew in the pre-surgical urine culture. So really highlighting the practice of widespread pre-surgical urine culturing that should likely be discontinued because there's just not a lot of uh, additional benefit um, in the decision-making process that it provides. It also highlights a really good opportunity to work collaboratively with surgical leadership, with pre-op teams to educate and optimize some of those screening practices. And, and then in general, I just want to put a plug that diagnostic stewardship can really have large impacts across the board, not just in uh, the surgical patient population. And it's going to be even more important as more complex and sensitive molecular tests come out. I just heard the other day about a urinary PCR test that is going to wake me up at night with nightmares um, because just all of the um, potential overuse of antibiotics it may cause. And so this diagnostic stewardship uh, is a really important piece. Awesome. Thanks so much for that, Andrew. So as our case continues, you are going through all this patient's information, you're chatting with the team, and you notice that the patient is only ordered for vancomycin as his perioperative prophylaxis for his surgery tomorrow in the setting of this listed penicillin allergy. And so uh, for either of you, any thoughts on what you might do to recommend the optimization of their perioperative prophylaxis? Yeah, so I'd say that we could safely optimize this patient's prophylaxis uh, from vancomycin to more of a first-line option like cefazolin. And so we know that patients that have listed penicillin allergies have about 50% increased odds of surgical site infections, likely due to using these second-line agents for prophylaxis. I know we end up giving a lot of vancomycin uh, in patients with listed allergies, and often we give them for too long. And so you're talking about increased risk of acute kidney injury, and that could lead to patient, worse patient outcomes, increased cost. Uh, and so this patient had a listed allergy of rash 60 years ago um, that didn't require any intervention or treatment. Um, so he's a really great candidate to receive an agent that has minimal risk of allergy cross-reactivity. And so with penicillin allergies, the reaction 
occurs based on the drug side chain. So if we pick agents that have a different side chain to penicillin, we can generally give them because of the low risk of cross-reactivity. Cefazolin is one of those first-line surgical prophylaxis options that has a completely different side chain to penicillin, so it's usually a safe option uh, in this patient's and is in this patient for the case. Um, the allergy and immunology expert community actually just updated guidelines last year to recommend that even in patients who have a history of anaphylaxis to penicillin, a non-cross-reactive cephalosporin like cefazolin can be administered without prior testing. And I also want to put a plug that another stewardship intervention related to surgical pro prophylaxis is to eliminate prolonged courses postoperatively. There was a recent Shea compendium that recommended against extending prophylaxis past closure in the OR. And there's numerous other guidelines that have come out recommending to really limit surgical prophylaxis to pre- and intraoperatively only. Extending prophylaxis after closure really provides no additional benefit in patient outcomes. And so just another great low-hanging fruit stewardship intervention that can really help cut back on some inappropriate use. Awesome. Thanks so much, Andrew. And, you know, the, making these recommendations can be hard sometimes, though. Many of these practices are deeply ingrained. And so, Jonathan, to bump back to you, are there any strategies that you recommend, communication techniques that you find particularly helpful when working with our surgical colleagues? Yeah, so this is a, a really interesting area in stewardship, which is really optimizing how we communicate with others and really the sociologic component um, uh, to stewardship. And one of my favorite um, studies was a, an ethnographic uh, study done in London a few years ago. They really looked at differences in how uh, internal medicine or medical teams approached antibiotics in comparison to surgical teams and how they communicated with each other and others around antibiotic use. And so as an internist myself uh, who works with medical teams quite a bit, it's really important to kind of have some perspective on how we interact with each other and ourselves um, as well. But medical teams tend to have kind of a collectivist approach in, in decision making. Everyone wants to work together and want to come to a consensus and an agreed upon plan really as a group. And this is usually quite interdisciplinary. We involve pharmacists and our consultant colleagues. Um, and this is kind of unique to the, to the medical team. And in contrast to this, surgical teams are often more individualistic, where residents are often kind of left making their own decisions as the senior surgeons are in the operating room or in the clinic and are not necessarily on rounds with them when these decisions are being made. Surgical teams are also less likely to have pharmacists available, and there was really less time um, spent dedicated to reviewing and stopping antibiotics by surgeons, which often led to these prolonged antibiotic courses. The surgeons were primarily focused on preventing poor surgical outcomes, and so they started um, antibiotics to try to prevent those things, but then didn't review them later on. Medical teams, however, really focus more on not disrupting their team dynamics or disagreeing with other consultants. And so um, medical teams really struggled when it came to antibiotics when there was a transition from the emergency department to the ward, as there was kind of a hesitancy to question the decision that was already made in the emergency department to start antibiotics, um, which led to antibiotics being continued for longer periods of time. And so the key when communicating with 
colleagues as a steward is to really know who are you dealing with? What is it? What are the cultural factors at your institution on that team? Um, what are their methods of communication and what is important to them? Um, and so a lot of the keys when interacting with surgical colleagues is to focus on the issues that are really important to them. They, they care a lot about their surgical outcomes. They care a lot about preventing surgical site infections, things like length of stay, um, and, and then trying to find ways to communicate with them uh, via the methods that work best for them. And sometimes this means, you know, that uh, rather than talking um, necessarily with the intern that is on the team uh, on the wards, talk to the attending that might be making the decisions about antibiotics. Or if they do have a pharmacist that works uh, closely with their team and that they trust, um, for example, I know our, our transplant team has a pharmacist that does a lot of their antibiotics, uh, really communicating with that pharmacist might be the most effective way um, because that pharmacist already knows that team and those dynamics even better than uh, I do as an individual. Thanks a ton, Jonathan. And so today we've already talked about so many wonderful and important things that stewardship teams do and how much really goes into that structure. But many of the trainees listening, for example, may not have as many opportunities to work with their institution's stewardship programs. And so what would you recommend that our listeners do in their just day-to-day practice to help support the stewardship mission in, in honor of Antibiotic Awareness Week? I'd say that day-to-day I recommend to continue building relationships with providers, being a visible group force program within the institution. Everybody really benefits when decisions are made collaboratively. And so building those relationships now opens up more downstream opportunities, either through future, you know, peer to peer recommendations, um, and conversations or just identifying further opportunities for more initiatives in the future. I also say that for anybody who's interested in more information or if they're feeling like they're at a standstill at their site. You know, they just feel like they need kind of a breath of uh, new life uh, in their stewardship program and want some inspiration. Look into some of the antimicrobial stewardship certificate programs that we've mentioned throughout this. So I know SIDP, the Society for Infectious Diseases Pharmacist, has a great one. Um, IDSA and SHEA, and I know Making a Difference in ID. You know, there are numerous programs and certificate classes, courses that can help with that. Um, sometimes it just takes some outside education or perspectives or expertise to really prompt ideas, bring some new direction in life in the clinical stewardship practice. And then lastly, I'm going to get deep and say, you know, as a stewardship clinician, give yourself grace. You're not always going to have your recommendations accepted. You know, there's going to be times where you have to compromise or maybe you even lose out on a compromise. And you've got situations where what's happening is completely against what you would have liked to have happened and recommended. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you're still trying and doing your best. And if at the worst, you at least planted a seed for what you think is optimal therapy. Uh, and so just give yourself some grace. That's really important advice for all of us, Andrew. Thank you for that. And kind of on that theme, you know, as we close out in our attempt to recruit the next great generation of stewards, I want to hear from both of you, you know, what made you choose a career in antimicrobial stewardship and what do you love about your job? So I think for me, the reason I chose to go into antimicrobial stewardship was, uh, you know, a multitude of reasons, but there's really an opportunity to optimize patient care really in the short term by making these interventions. And in the long term, I think you see a greater benefit um, at, at a societal level by helping to reduce antimicrobial resistance and also um, across your institution by educating uh, prescribers on antibiotic use uh, strategies. 
But also, antimicrobial stewardship has a wealth of opportunities for doing quality improvement. There's a lot of opportunities for scholarship in this regard. And really, it's just an amazing community within infectious diseases. As a member and participant of Shea, it's really been just uh, incredibly welcoming. And really getting to know everyone within this community has been amazing as a, as a young uh, a faculty member. Yeah, and I don't know how I'm going to follow, follow Jonathan because, you know, he, he nailed it right on the head. But I'll say similarly, I, I really value the opportunity to intervene on individual patients and in complicated cases, but then also really work on more of the overarching protocols, policies, initiatives that can have further reaching impacts. I feel like you can do work that impacts not only patients that are in your hospital now, but also downstream, you know, in the future. And then I'll mention personally, I really love data tracking and analytic uh, and my criminal stewardship really allows me to have a lot of opportunities for this and was really scratched that itch, you know, pairing QI processes uh, with data analytics and tracking to allow you to make changes and then evaluate your impact is just something I find really fulfilling as well. And Andrew, I'm just going to add, because uh, I, I should have said this the first time, but, you know, stewardship is a interdisciplinary and collaborative field. And it's a great opportunity to have ID clinicians work with our ID pharmacist. And I value that every single day I do stewardship. Both both groups bring unique perspective um, to stewardship. And I think it's a really key component of this whole thing. Completely agree. I, I love the interdisciplinary approach and the, the collegiality that I feel like exists in the ID and stewardship community. Thank you again to Ray, Andrew, and Jonathan for joining Febrile today. Don't forget to check out the website, febrilepodcast.com, to find the consult notes, which are written supplements of the show with links to references, our library of ID infographics, and a link to our merch store. Please reach out if you have any suggestions for future shows or want to be more involved with Febrile. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you next time.